0: Hi, it's Monday night. I'm a little bit behind schedule over here. Um, I was in Lakewood for for uh, Sunday. Had to do a wedding yesterday. And by the time all the adventures is over, I didn't get back to Baltimore till today. So, um, I was going to do something yesterday. I came back. A lot of things happened, but uh, I didn't need to bother you with that. Let me say that I was had no idea who to do today. And I just flipped through the yard the sites. And since i've been doing outliers and people not on the main track uh, so i looked through all these different things and i see it's Dr. Rebel's yards it was last week and that's probably most people never don't know much about i'll say the founder why you although it's not exactly correct you'll see what i mean uh, Dr. Bernard Rebel and uh, he's a very interesting person so let me say a few words about him uh, tonight to this podcast today is being sponsored by David Kazernowski, um, from New York, I believe. Uh, very kind. I don't have anybody for the rest of the week for uh, the parsha and the uh, haftorah. I hope that will materialize, but meanwhile, thanks to the Kazernowskis, and um, let me get right down to work because um, I have a full week's of work worth of work to do in many areas. Um, <sighs> there's somebody a little bit unusual, Dov Revel, um, who. It really, it, this is a book written by, what's the name, by uh, Rakevit Rothkoff. Um, the, the historian from YU, um, Aaron Rothkopf wrote his PhD dissertation, and they published it at JPS way back in the 1970s or so. And I remember reading it. i don't, I, I tell you the truth. I hesitate to talk about this because I don't think I've looked at the book in, in 40 years. But it doesn't matter. It was very well written. And if you're really interested in what I'm going to talk about tonight, You'll see it more being. You'll take a look at his book, which is republished from time to time. Although he obviously gives it a certain spin, um, but everybody does. Now, anyway, here we go. The we're talking about Dove Rebel, who died young. I mean, he's born in 1885 and he died in 1940, right in the beginning of the war. So that means what? He was 55 years old. That's young. I I think he had heart trouble or diabetes or something like that. Um, You know. So this always makes a difference. Didn't make it through World War II. Now here's somebody very Obviously very unusual otherwise I wouldn't be talking about him. Um, He was Born in Lithuania as a super Litvak That itself is something He's born in 1885 So that's, that's I'm going to be giving it a spin tonight I can't do a whole biography of somebody Because somebody like Revel would take about Two and a half hours I'll do pieces but I want to do it with a spin From our perspective today and I'm not talking necessarily the difference between YU and Lakewood and all that. That's part of it. But there's a different spin from a historical point of view. Again, it's my opinion, that's all. That's my opinion. Now, uh Rabbi Revel was born near Kovna. Uh, his father was a rabbi of a small town near Kovna. Really less than twenty miles away. Pranai, they call it Pran. I passed by it once when I was in Lithuania with the with the driver. The garnished. Um, so basically, you're living, so to speak, on the outskirts of Kovna. Just imagine that. And if he's born in 1885, he's is still alive. It's that period. So this is the heartland of Lithuania, I mean the belly button of Litvish Lithuania. And that means if it's the late eighteen hundreds, it's every kind of ism in the world. There's Zionism, there's Haskalah, there's Yeshivaism, but you and I are familiar with today has its origins. Talk in that period, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, in Kovna, in Lithuania. That's where Slobodka is, is a what do you call it? Another suburb of a couple, closer one. Um The yeshivaism that we have today, Lithuania, I mean, really comes from that period. And all of them are responses to the crises of modernity. Oh, that's too large of a subject to get into. Socialism, uh communism, uh, all of them. Okay, all which means that at the time I'm talking about the very end of the 1800s, it was all part of Tsarist Russia. The Jews there had already started moving to America. It was pretty clear that the regime was beyond anal, would never give the Jews any rights. If anything, was getting worse. You know what I'm saying? It was getting worse. The rest of Europe was getting better and giving the Jews more civil rights. Russia was going the opposite direction. What's the end? What's the end? And under the impact of all this stuff, the Russian persecutions, the new ideas coming in from Germany, which is adjacent to Lithuania, the very fact that old-fashioned fundamentalist ideas are anyway subject to horrible questioning in the 19th century, for which religion doesn't have good answers. You know, historicist questions. Bible criticism, this, that, and the other. And, you uh, the whole spirit of the late Haskalah in Russia at that time it was heading anti frun And what's the answer? You understand? Know the rabbin don't have an answer. He's called an inspector somewhere like that. They can be goni, and shahs. That doesn't mean you have an answer for all the modern questions. That's important, what I'm saying. So under the impact of that, the Jewish community kind of atomized. And especially, keep in mind, the younger generation, a lot of them went on this direction, a lot of them went in that direction. As we all know, a few Yechidim went Yeshiva-ish direction. The altar of Slabbak and people like that started Yeshiva said that there would be at least one direction for at least some of the youth to go into. You understand? Because the old way, you know, did, did was not working, was disintegrating. Our hero, ironically, was going to be so famous in connection with YU, who's who's Yeshiva building, did not go to Yeshiva. His father was a rough in this small town. Obviously, when he was young, he was an Eloy. Otherwise, he wouldn't be talking about him. been blown him, Mula, an Amula, Amila. He's Eloy. The father said, Alright, I'm gonna teach him myself, which is very smart. Right? When that's possible. Most fathers don't have the patience for this. But maybe in a small little town there's nothing doing it anyway. They was happy as someone wanted to learn. And his son's a big Balkishan. It's a good shit. And anyway, when you don't send your kid away to learn by others, let me put it this way, you save yourself from molester problems from this problem from bad friends. And it's interesting. But the father died when he was twelve before he was born mitzvah. The family moved to Kovna. So that means that um he moved there the year after Yitzhikokhan Spector died. His father, apparently, from what I read, was a friend of Yitsukochan Spector. They're buried in each other, something like that. So he's Renach ever. So here's a boy growing up among the elite of the Lithuania rabbinate. And the reason I say that is, there's a certain fine kite. You understand? It's, a, it's smart, but it's a certain, what's the right word, refinement, shall we say. I would say he had a, a refined personality. But what do you do when you're an orphan like that? And it's 1897, you're 12 years old. What, what happens? Now... In a regular story, you say, I guess, well, somebody, some rich uncle sent him off to yeshiva. Nothing like that happened. And so, he's a from boy. And so, he learns by himself in local synagogues in Kovna. I bet you at that time was probably 30, 40, 50 shuls. I was in Kovna a couple years ago. There's like one or two shuls left. Understandably. Not at that time. That little cloison-based measures, things like that. And so... He ain't going to be the regular. He's somebody who's going to be from, but not because he went through Slobuktu or something like that, you know, with the brainwashing of of Slobuktu. I don't mean brainwashing in a bad way. I mean brainwashing in the sense of giving an indoctrination of yeshivism, which will be necessary in the 20th century. But he didn't get there. Um At the most, he was an Eloi, and so he learned with guys. Everybody wants to learn with a smart guy. So if I walk into Base mesh a couple of different Kavrus is learning, and they're not yeshiva, they're just you know local covenant guys, and this guy's a Balkishan, I want to learn when I'm second Seder, so do you, why not? You know what I'm saying? And he was apparently a nice guy, you know, not a scheming type, and so very good. Uh, it's now that he, uh, I remember he said he uh, used to listen to the speeches from Isil Petterberger, you know, most of his speeches, which obviously made a rosham of him. It's an interesting type of education. It's not a school education. You what I'm saying? It's an autodidactic education, which, to tell you the honest truth, can be better. It, depend, you know, it depends, of course. You don't have a yeshiva hadrach exactly, but on the other hand, nobody's trying to turn you into a cookie cutter and trying to suppress anything. You're not under anybody's discipline. I think that's fascinating. Okay? And, you know? So, um... There you are from the late 1897, he's born 1885, so figure 1897 to 1902, 1903, when he's growing up, he's a teenager, this is how he's spending the years there. Kovno is also uh, a big headquarters of all the isms. Not only the Frumism, you certainly that's what makes Lithuania so interesting. You definitely had your Bate Medrash and those learner types. You did. You also had communists. Socialists, Bundists, Yiddishists, Zionists. This type of Zionists and that type of Zionists. Chad, kad yok. You have everything. Plus, assimilationists, people who, are, who want to Russianize, Westernize. You know, if, so my point's like this. if you, Especially, if you're not in a yeshiva, especially a are yeshiva at that time, where they try to be like Jeremy Bentham and exercise total control of through the Mashkiach, Shouldn't ever read anything. Shouldn't they see anything. Here, a guy's on his own. He's 15, 16, 17 years old. He's from because he feels like being from. Not because anybody's making him. Not because the mashkil gets you in trouble. Because, not because he say, oh, you're wrong, you should do him. You know what I'm saying? To me, these are things that are usually unemphasized in his biography. To me, they're very interesting and very important. Um, and you have all kind of ideas out there. So I'm sure a guy like this. You know, there were all the Haskalah newspapers, and the tracts, and the, the essay writers, and the Am is around at that time, and Bialik. It's it's just an interesting place, okay? Now, he obviously was one of the rare guys that could read all this stuff and stay from. Okay. He went for Tells for a while, but obviously that didn't work. He left pretty quick, because Tells was an antithesis of what I just said. <laughs> you understand? Tells was a control place. Although at that particular time, Tells had a very interesting history, and they had some student rebellions and things like that. But, you know, there's a snitch system. That's how should was worried. You just got to get used to it. And that wasn't for him. And so, he's 17, 18, 19, 20. He's learning on his own. I'm sure he picked up classic Oscala fashion. Autodidactically, you learn a little math, learn a little history. Read some Russian, learn some history, learn some geography, you know, like that. Then came to the when he's 20 years old, the first Russian revolution broke out, 1905, which idealistically, peace thought, will bring down the Tsar, or at least lead to a change in the uh, type of administration. And tomorrow, things will get better for everybody, including for the Jews. But of course, it didn't happen that way. This is Russia. And so the Tsar put down the rebellions. And actually... They start persecuting the people who been shy to the rebellions. Uh, he obviously was somehow connected with that, although I don't think much. The guy I'm talking about is not a revolutionary. So he must have attended a rally or something like that. or read a paper. He was arrested. Still were a ton of people. And when he gets out of jail, he wasn't there for a long time, I'm going to America. This is why people, you know, left. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. A lot of people left after 1905 comes to america new york in 1905 1906 different world altogether but a strange world fascinating on the one hand it's the land of the freedom of the home of the brave it's a democracy forget all the junk you had in russia it's a democracy on the other hand the problem of course is the crisis of judaism because it's the period of the lower east side millions are coming in i want you to understand If he came to this country in 1906, I believe it was. Every year during those years, this is Teddy Roosevelt and Taft. Those years, 100,000 new Jews showed up in America. Look it up. Look up the numbers. It's crazy. Over 100,000 new arrivals came mostly to New York. as as a mob, okay? It's a mob. This was the big Jewish immigration prior to the First World War. It's crazy. He was part of that. They come to places like New York and Chicago and all the rest of America. And as we all know, the old guys still try to stay from. Many don't. The young ones, less. The young, young ones, not at all. The main reasons, how do you simplify it? In the context of the huge urbanization, I mean, here's a guy, Dove Rebel, who used to live in Prenn. Everybody knows everybody. You come to New York, nobody knows anybody. You're anonymous as you want to be, you can be as from it or as far as you feel like it. A lot of people, the reason that they're staying from causes social pressure. I hate to say it and people will deny it, but if you think it through, for better or worse, there's a lot of truth there. You know see? Not because of theological reasons, cause of social. We've worked to build up a social network and set of relationships to exercise that kind of control, but best we can but nevertheless it's a fact and most importantly as he surveys the Jewish scene and here's a guy 21 years old so typical yeshiva background well not yeshiva exactly but Talmudic education background ton of those guys all the leaders in a non from thing had Talmudic background and you survey what's going on in America and You ask yourself the question, anybody with with vision could see in 20 years and 30 years it's all going to fall apart. There will be nothing left. Now, that means that America was experiencing a profound crisis of traditionalism. The old traditionalism that worked longer before, which was already in crisis in Europe, was in crisis on steroids in America in the first part of the 20th century. And... The main reason, looking back from our perspective today, is there was no chinuch. There wasn't even an attempt to set up no chinuch. You know, the haters and all this other junk because there was junk. Islamist junk. And it turned the kids off. And there were no day schools. There was nothing. There was one or two day schools in New York. So without that, let alone yeshivas, forget about it. So just on that alone, Everybody has public school. Now, he's 21 years old. He's got to work, look out for number one. He knocks around for a couple of years, trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, and remember, he, he knew how to learn very well. It was Eloy. And so he meets somebody, a big robot of that time. Now, I told you, I spoke a little bit, a little bit, a little bit once about the of silver. I never finished it. He was one of the best of that out of God's robot. But that doesn't mean they're all like him. At the time I'm talking about, the two big rabbis, the goodness of one of just started, and they were trying to clean up the act to some degree in America up against phonies calling themselves rabbis and this, that, and the other. And they succeeded to some degree. They also failed to some degree. So one was Ramaz, and the other was Rabbi Levenshal. Ramaz was Moshe Zul and Margulis. It was a big literature And He was successful in America. We ended up becoming the rabbi in KJ. Yeah, which is now Luxtein. Um looks is some kind of descendant of his. Uh literature robbed the old school. Um very you know, held in high esteem. And uh he was taken to be the Yiddish speaking rabbi in the KJ. But to show you how screwed up everything was, the KJ, which was just, uh, Russian Jews who had come a generation earlier than the others. So they were already a little more settled and more uh, successful. So they wanted to be more Americanized, but they don't want to be reformer or conservative. They're, they're so screwed up. They had two rabbis, one an English-speaking rabbi, and one a English-speaking rabbi. The English-speaking rabbi was Ramaz. Oh, big gone. The English-speaking rabbi was Mordecai Kaplan, who founded the Reconstruction. So I'm just trying to tell you, that's how what Andromusi America was at that time. And the exciting new movement was conservative. Solomon Schechter came in late 1902, beginning and started in 1903. The Jewish Theological Assembly was supposed to take off and do amazing things for Yiddishkeit, I say again, for Yiddishkeit. The way it was sold would be a a modern Orthodox. It's not true, but that's what they said. This is going to change everything. But anybody who knew, knew that basically the Apocursum. What I mean by that is like this, they do not believe the Bible comes from God. And so if you don't have that, then the rest of it, where's it going? And so people like well, most of them are Gullis. And the other guy was Rabbi Leventhal. Rabbi Leventhal from uh, Philadelphia. He was like big rabbi in Philly. And these two were the main guys in the Agotis Rabbanan, who had just started. And they let's see. Hi, hi, I just got interrupted. <laughs> Somebody wants me to go to Israel to talk. Anyway, listen. Um, so I was talking about Levensal and, uh, and uh, what do you call it? Reus- Moshe Zumar These are the early years that I go through. my money. they knew what's going on in America wrong. They had a, 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 a very, you know, kind of basic idea of what needs to be done, but they couldn't do it because what you have to understand is the people who came to America right to left all wanted to Americanize. This country was so free and so nice, even with the sweatshops. And the culture seemed to be so superior to what they'd seen before that they all wanted to Americanize. Adraba, the very fact that America made no um, pressure on them to convert or anything like that, was itself the biggest inducement to do so. And what do you do about that? you can't say, what I'm trying to say is like this. A post-World War II Rebaron Cutler approach, which is or a Hasidic approach was that you should reject America while you accept America. You know, you don't want to Americanize. That's, that doesn't fly in 1905, 1910. I have to get that across. That's not what people wanted to hear. They want to hear the opposite. Show me how you can become American and still be Shomer Shabbos. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if you don't get that, then you don't understand the whole era. And um, it's really very interesting, by the way. Even the frum-frum felt this way. And uh, and whoever did, the ch- their children certainly did. So the point is that, how are you going to change it? Now it was Yeshiva Yitzchakon already, meaning where Yitzchakon died, they actually set up a Yeshiva Godola in 1896 or so in New York, the original REITs. Uh, but it was a Yeshiva, and it was going nowhere, okay? It was going nowhere. Um, but what do you call it? The uh, uh, balabatim who supported yeshiva had a funny attitude. Anybody who wants to go to college or do high school on the side, they won't pay him to learn because I'm paying you. I'm paying you to sit full time, right? It's it's like a businessman's approach. It wasn't that they were ultra firm or anything like that? They were firm in their way. But these guys who came over and said, I want to learn in Yeshiva a couple years, but meanwhile, I'd also like to become a doctor, a lawyer, this, that, and the other. Instead of figuring out how you combine one with the other, they would say, if you're doing that, then you're not, only, you're not learning full-time, and therefore, um, you're not entitled to any support. And this was a tremendous turn-off in the first decade of Y.U. And, uh, well, it wasn't Y.U. Of then, of course. It was Y.U.S.H.I.V.S.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H.H so therefore, it's a, it, you know, it's it going against the Litvish from Frumkeit kind of a certain type. And he was always a failure. And the best guys went to the JTS. This is the problem. There were years that a whole bunch of the guys used to go to JTS because the Jewish theological ceremony they said, come by us and we'll train you to be rabbis and you'll get a good speech. You know, you'll, uh, you'll speak English well, you get the, sh- the uh, modern shoals, and you able make a part of So this constant hemorrhaging was a, fundamental problem. A lot of people in the Gurdsir of them said, it doesn't matter, yeshiva has to be pure yeshiva, um, no matter what. And the others say, no, it's got to change. And these fights were going back and forth. This is what America was going through at that time. I just told you what's happening among the smartest of them all, the people thought about yeshiva, education at all, thought about Jewish education. Almost most people didn't even think about this one bit. Hi, I keep being interrupted over here. Let me start again, but there's that's what happens when you I do this at night. Um can't excuse me, can't help it if I'm in the rabbi business. The um what was I saying about the fact that people um didn't even give any thought to Kenikh in a serious way. So what is what 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 is to be done? <clears throat> now I'll say it again, there was a grand total of one yeshiva Gadol, for better or worse. That was in New York City. That's all there is in the United States of America. And you have millions of Jews pouring in here all the time. I say again, every year, 100,000 Jews were coming. And from a firm perspective, like the Chavitz Chaim used to write in his books, it's 100,000 Jews going down the tubes. You see, which isn't 100% true, but it's substantially true. So what is to be done about this? Well, now, let's take our hero. The guy came to America, he was 26 years old. Okay? Um, what do you First, get your own act together. Right? And uh, that's what he did. I remember he got involved with the... Uh, or to Yisrael, which was the, that's a schmooze by itself. That's a, 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 certain, type of, a certain type of firm attempt to match the Jewish encyclopedia that had just been put out. Um, he got involved in other projects. Um, he went to NYU to get some kind of degrees. In other words, he must have taken, um, what will I say, the equivalent of high school courses in order to get, all the, you know, what we would say today would be a sufficient high school education to be able to enter college. And he ended up going to NYU for a while. And uh, I wasn't sure whether be a lawyer or not. You know, what what do you do indeed at that age? He's not married. I mean, that's a perfectly valid question. You know, cast Manolin. And um, meanwhile, he met this rabbi, met that rabbi, and they saw he's the the guy's young. He's from. He's actually he's a I mean, He's really from Guy, and he knows how to learn, which is extremely unusual. You know, they're very impressed with that, especially Rabbi Leventhal. And um, in the end. And, you know, he was a secretary for Rabbi Leventhal for a while, always trying to figure out his future, so he spends a year or two in Philly. Philly was the headquarters of what I would call the intellectual brains of the conservative movement in the best sense of the word in the first decade of the 20th century, Uh, because that's where Cyrus Adler lived and Judge Salzberger and Dr. Solis Cohn and all these names of people who are associated with the founding of conservative Judaism, who certainly meant well. But they were all big on Marats and They didn't understand things. And they thought if you bring Solomon Shechner, those type of guys, everybody's going to save everything. They simply had Krum Hashkafas, to use the yeshiva expression. They did mean well, but they just didn't understand. And uh, so here we have a guy who's, like I said before, 25, 26, 27. He was in Russia. Those learn, he was in Lithuania, not Russia. He was in Kovna, in Lithuania. Um... He's comes from a refined background, and naturally genteel. The other hand, he wants to get ahead in life. Who doesn't? Circumstances brought him to the USA. There's a whole huge wave of uh, assimilation. This, I guess, slowly but surely taking over. The older generation is talking Yiddish, but the younger generation isn't, so to speak. And um, I'm talking about even among the frum. The fr- I forget it. And, uh, you know, what's he going to do for a living? Now... In Philadelphia, first of all, he was the secretary for Rabbi Eleventh. so that gives you a nice, what's the right word? A nice uh, view of the Rabbonus, because Rabbi Leventhal was the rub of a city. That means, you know, unofficial, but nevertheless real. You deal with the kashos, with the with the shokhtim, with the balabatim, with the shoals, with the rabbis and the, and, and the laity, you know, with a hundred things. Uh, second of all, this, this got him a smicha from them, you yeah. know, because he can talk to them and learning. And he knew how to learn very well. He was a Lucia guy, although, like I said before, he marched to his own drummer, he didn't go to yeshiva. And maybe they liked that. I don't know. If, so I don't remember where he got a smicha, if he was from Levith or from Zbul and Margol. So it doesn't matter. You know, he you know how to learn. And good talk and learning, too. Now, he's also interested in broader Jewish culture. I would say he's a masculine in the following sense. He's a but from uh, that he's interested in the outside culture, which doesn't mean he's neglecting his own. And second of all, he, he is willing to subscribe to a larger definition of Jewish than just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Even though he was fully home in Gamar, 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 he loved it. But there's other stuff there too. Now, in his time, the other thing besides the Gamar, 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 would be two things, A and B. A the Haskalah, and B, what I would call Chachmes Yisrael, or, or, or modern Jewish academics. He's called Wissenschaft des Judentums. The first one is Hebrew stuff, you know, from Bialik, from Mendel Farm, for all these in Yiddish literature, Hebrew literature, these would be non academic novels, plays, essays, journalism, the whole world of Jewish letters, Achara'am all this stuff, ideas out there. And just as an intelligent person, listen, let me ask you a question. Do you uh, look at anything on the Internet? Right? Do you go to the Jewish press or, I mean, the Jerusalem Post or one of these things? You know, you do Times of Israel. The, you want to know what's going on? You see, that that's who he was. Uh, but that stuff is light, get it? It's not serious. Another poem, another novel. The serious stuff, I don't think he was into that much. But why would he be? Uh, There's no evidence there. But he was very interested in what I would call Jewish history and Jewish philosophy and all that kind of stuff, which is what you're doing by listening to this podcast at this moment. You see? And he was interested in Chachmas Yisro. At that time, the big names in this were the ones who had been trained academically to do historical research. You can't just sit down and do a stomp, no, you can that's the Maskelem who were tried to be Jewish historians. You know, they just got plot. Talking about people with academic training. And he wanted that. I repeat what I said before. It doesn't mean he's not going to be from. After all, the Doris Roshan was in his time. He was from. He started the Algarit. So, Dov Rebel, you know, is interested in history, especially in that sort of thing. And I would even go so far as to say he would try to fight for from views within the Jewish historical discipline. You know what I mean? Profession. But how do you get the degree in Jewish history? There was no such thing. okay? And to go for general history, I get the impression you was not so crazy about that because you have to really be interested in world history and go deep into it. I mean European history and go deep into it. I did it. You know, you got, you got to be willing to do that. You understand? Yeah. I don't think he was so interested in that. But then something popped up exactly the time. I remember, he lived in Philadelphia for a while. And something very strange happened in Philadelphia in 1908. In 1909. And it is the following. The guys who started the JTS uh really were originally from Philly. Rabbi Sabato Moreas, um Jastro, um uh, what do you call it? Cyrus Adler. These are names from yesteryear, Judge Salzberger. Solomon Solis Cohn. Names nobody's ever heard of anymore. But they were the leaders of American thought at that time who were opposed to reform. Hear what I just said? These are guys who were opposed to reform. But they weren't from. Now, maybe, you know, they have to qualify. Some yes, some no, like that. So it was a gray area. Now, um, they really wanted that everything should be located in Philly. Because they were local patriots. I know it sounds funny, but that's what it was. Believe me, if we were up to them, the JTS, everything would be in Philly. That should be the intellectual headquarters of Judaism. They weren't going to have that. That's not going to happen, because it's got to be in New York. But they made Dropsy College in Philly. To Haino, there was this rich guy, who was a bachelor, an old man. He saved together about a, close to a million bucks. Over a lifetime, he was a big lawyer in Philly. Moses Aaron Drabsey Moshe Aendrabse Who is a Philly native. Mother was a guide, father was a Jew, and he converted as a kid to Judaism, which is unusual. And he didn't know much about Judaism, but but he knew he, he held off. And one thing he knew, he's very opposed to Reform Judaism. Because he's one of these these guys who were conservative. The reason I say conservative means he liked the way things were. These belong to the Mikvik Israel Synagogue, one of the old shuls left over from the colonial times. And it's not Ashkenaz. The Mincha is done this way. The Chazan does it this way. We say these prayers in this time. The Ashkavot and all this other business. And the traditionalism itself was what you worshipped. I mean, it's, it's funny, but that's how it was. Now, um, they were proud that they're old American, and they've been keeping these customs uh, since George Washington and before and they were Shomer Shabbos after a fashion. Sort of Cyrus Adler was anyway. And I believe Jasper was a Shomer Shabbos, as hard as to believe because he had a he had a left-wing reform shul. He had all kind of mishigas in Philadelphia. Now, um, this guy, Dropsy, he had a will. And when he dies, the money should go to start a school for Hebrew and cognate learning. Uh They'll be open to all regardless of age uh what's the right word? Race, color, or creed. Something like that. So no, he wanted to build a school of higher learning higher Jewish learning. What could have happened, but didn't, was they take the money and make YU. A million bucks. They take the money and make Lakewood. Well, you know, something like that. Theoretically. Because the guy went to school of higher learning, and he wasn't from Guy. Matter of fact, he wrote a, a pamphlet. <laughs> They show you where he was holding. The title of the pamphlet goes like this Reform Judaism or Deform Judaism? You know, he was really against reform. We ain't know much. So um they were waiting for him to die, you know. That's the dirty truth. And when he died, you know, there were executors as well, including Cyrus Adler and these guys. So instead of turning it for a genuinely firm purpose. Which was outside your universe of thought. They said, "Let's make something called Dropsy College, which will just be for people have a two year course and get a PhD." <laughs> In other words, if you go to um, college and you get a BA, a bachelor's, you can skip the masters and go to this school. you study Jewish type subjects, and you write your dissertation. And you got your PhD. Which is amazing, theoretically. Now, um, and they thought this way, and it'll be non-sectarian. In other words, it won't be orthodox, conservative reform, nothing, which means it won't be from. And uh, strictly academic standards. And that'll be uh, Gvaldi. Now, because they were so stubborn, they said it has to be in Philadelphia. Nobody lived in Philadelphia. Of the type that was going to school. No, let me put it this way. Suppose they would make it in New York. Let's say they make it in New York. They put it in Manhattan. i was just making this up. Even at that time, in 1909, 1910. Every student went to the JTS. And every guy went to YU later. And everybody went to Stephen Wise and all this other junk. It would all go to Dropsy, because why the hell not? Get two years, get your PhD. It's a real, it's a genuine PhD. You see? It was an American PhD. for what's Nished. Yeah, why have to go to regular university and do your work like I had to do? <laughs> Just go to Dropsy. But since they insisted it should be in Philadelphia, they never had hardly any students. Our hero was the first student there. Get it? Our hero, Dove Rebel. He knew all these guys. He was living. It was Rabbi. Uh, What's you called? In uh, in uh, Philly anyway. It was Rabbi Levithal. and he enrolled. They had their various courses, I know taught there in those days, uh what was the name, uh, Max Margolis and uh, Malter, super anti Front guys, but I'm sure I know what exactly what happened, you take the doggone course or whatever you need to take, <laughs> you pass the test, you think whatever you think, you write the stupid dissertation, and get out of there, Yeah. You know? so he was the first student, and it may be one student, he was the only student in drops in the beginning, or maybe it was another, they always have very few students. And he wrote his dissertation on the Karaites, which means they want to do something to show he's not a farfrumpter. Even though within the argument of the Karait halakha, I don't want to get into it, he tries to argue a from point of view. This has to do with 19th century Russian pseudo-discoveries of old Karait manuscripts. It's not to us now. And the bottom line is now he's Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Revel. Right? He didn't go... The regular way to get a rabbi thing, he got it from uh, Ramaz and the other guy in from uh, Mosul go- Margoz. He didn't go through the yeshiva system, although he knew how to learn. And he didn't get a PhD in the normal way either, but he got a rabbi doctor. Okay? And what's funny is the non from couldn't criticize because it's their own PhD. Then he got married around that time. He married a rich girl, and the family was in the oil business, and he went with them. They were from Ohio, Oklahoma, whatever. He he was away from New York for X number of years. And he's a, you know, he's a the type of person I'm talking about sits and learns in his own time. So he put in his time for learning. Meanwhile, YU was going from bad to worse. More and more guys, the best guys were always going to the uh, Jewish Theological Seminary. I could give you a list of names. The best guys. And why you or I keep saying why you I'm you know we or, or going after there and that meant that although you had the paradox of millions of people coming over who were from from Russia as from Eastern Europe that kind of traditionalist from kite in America the kids because there's nothing else they're going to conservative or less or less and so things are going down the tubes <laughs> that the board of directors realized it's not working the way they're doing it and they finally went to our hero they said you're the only guy we know has a unique background that he's got a yard in in Lemuria Kodesh for sure he's got a yard in Chachmas Yisrael for sure you have an American PhD you can speak English when necessary you can certainly speak Yiddish you are a great Talmud Kocham. You also understand the secular world. We actually have a real college education. Okay. So you take over the yeshiva as Rosh Yeshiva. And we'll follow you. Because we don't have the right vision. We're just balabaten. We want the thing to work. We don't have where to go. And what do you call it? You know, help us. And he agreed. I'm skipping over a lot of details, but I you, I don't have time to go through all this. And 1914, 1915, he took over. And he said, listen, we're going to try to make a super yeshiva here the work for America. Now, it wasn't YUE yet. It wasn't college yet. They want to put the yeshiva on a firm ground. The first thing you're going to do is something revolutionary. And that is, we're going to make a high school. You have to understand, he made the first high school. I'm talking about Yeshiva High School would have English and Hebrew one, one school. Not that you're going to public school and afterwards you're going here for the Amir, or vice versa. Zero public school for 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. It's going to be Yeshiva High School. Now, you have to understand, when he said to do that, people think it's possible. The Frum were so schlepperish. Everything they did didn't work. People think they can't, they don't have the, the skills to organize an actual high school that requires state supervision and actual courses. They're so dumb, they don't know anything. And he said it's not true, we can make it work, and he did. So the first high school started in nineteen fifteen, the World War One was the one. That emphasized the feeling that we have to build up in America because you can't rely on Europe. And in nineteen nineteen they they graduated the first high school class. So meanwhile you have a feeder. And second all, you have the possibility, I repeat, the possibility of your kid actually um, going into a from environment for high school, which is huge. For boys, not for girls. This is early on. No, forget girls. But at least a boy can do 9th, 10th, 11th grade, not worry about a Christmas play, and not worry about, you know, the other calendar stuff, not hearing about making fun of religion, and so forth. From school, in fact, the same same Raler approach, which is the socialization the fact that the whole school's from and or at least publicly is everybody in your class has the same culture there's almost a more powerful reinforcement of of social norms in this case Schmer and misses than lectures and shiurim and, and that sort of thing um uh, he also combined two or three schools into one. To try to build up and he he made, he made a shot to try to make the yeshiva something. You hear what I said, try to make yeshiva something. Not a joke. They had a hard time. And he's always pressed from the right and the left. Because the to goodest to rebundman, I remember if you read Rakhet's book, he has a lot about this. Um it, it, because he read all the you know correspondence and things like this. And you know, let's put it this way many rabbis and I go to the and say don't make why don't make the school too modern and the other guys on the other end makes don't make the school insufficiently modern you know and he also took in right or wrong the teachers college that the Mizrahi had set up heres another different model um it used to be something called the teacher's college now it's a good idea if you know what you're doing This is one of those ideas from 100 years ago, which is, how do we teach kids in in Talmud Torahs in afternoon schools and so forth? The teachers themselves don't know anything. So the reform started first by saying, we'll make a curriculum, and a two-year course, that you should be able to hear Hebrew teachers, teachers of, of Jewish subjects. The conservatives eventually followed, and the Mizrahi movements that went up it's very typical. You know, here it's it's light on the Gemara. It's very musculic. You get it? Because Jewish education they had in mind that time, very musculic. Ivrit, if Ivrit, if all this junk, you know, that didn't work so well. Doesn't, you end. You don't come out with real ideas. But it was so popular once upon a time, it was associated with modern ideas of education. They thought this will save American Jewry, save world Jewry. It was a waste of time, but, you know, some people will disagree with that. They're wrong, but they'll disagree with it. Now, um, he said, "Okay, the teacher college will become part of YU, which means they already automatically have within the school a left-wing operation. Um, little by little, he has the, the vision that the only way, in his opinion, to save American Jewry is to make a a, a university. A, he didn't call it this, the yeshiva slash university." They'll be like Harvard. It'll be so big and kosher. They'll exercise a tremendous hashpah to American Jewry and keep a lot of people from. What I'm trying to emphasize is he wasn't yeshivish exactly by his background and he had a Klai Yisrael type approach and he thought although he was very realistic what can we do to try to bring American Jewry as a group closer to Shemir's Mitzvahs? How do we do American Jewry as such? You see, when the yeshiva started out, like at Lakewood and Torodos, all the others, that's a different model. That's a model most of people are going down the tubes. We have to save the few that we can save and build up from that. Which turned out to be a very realistic model. But it means you're not really focusing on Klai Yisrael because you say it's too late. Like Yisrael Santer said, when the, when, when the train goes crashing down the mountain, you can't stop it. You know what I'm saying? You have to work with what you what we can work with. The well, Rabbi, Rebel, Rabbi Rebel didn't see it that way. He was always thinking these broad, very idealistic terms. Probably, you know, it's a very old-fashioned from approach. It's not a new-fashioned from approach. It's an old-fashioned from approach, which is interesting. And that was the model of the rabbinate, even though it was a button, you know, in the early 20th century, which is how can we make the whole ball them more from? If you can get people to keep Shabbos another 5%, you've scored a big victory, as opposed to a Near Israel Lakewood Torah Dow's approach, which is the Halano. Easy, you're gonna be Shomer Shabbos, and are not gonna be Shomer Shabbos. Five percent more doesn't matter. If you're gonna be Shomer Shabbos, then do it the Mr. Burway. If not, then don't even make any pretenses. You see? Uh, which is very American, also, which is cut the ball. <laughs> yeah. But the other model is we're all part of Claudia's Yisrael and every bit you can help somebody keep kosher a little bit better, keep Mitz a little bit better where the is at least two days a week, you know, at least make a leisure. But so toba I can't, that is an old, very grounded Jewish approach. I think this was Dr. Rebel's approach. And so he started thinking in bigger terms, how can make the yeshiva uh a, a national famous, world famous? Now, the model over here was a conservative reform. To be exact, America had no institution of higher Jewish learning. Then the reform started in the 1870s. They got on the ball first. You can't take it away from them. They did it. And that means from the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, they were the only show. Then the JTS started, and after a slow start, came under Solomon Schechter in the early 1900s. And so that means if you have reform, all the reform schools are organized in one denominational group. It's beautifully organized. With the HUC, the rabbinical school at the top. If a conservative, all the conservative schools are organized in a beautiful model, denominationally, with the JTS at the top. What about your Orthodox? What about your Orthodox? The answer is well, you have nothing. That shows what dumb stupid idiots you are. The Reform got this. The conservative have this. The Orthodox have nothing. They're all over the place. In fact, you are always fighting each other over Hexchers, over Arabs, over this, that, and the other. They were so busy Fighting each other, calling each other names, they don't do anything constructive, which was true. And so, the model over here is what I would call the OU model, which flourished once upon a time. And that was that all American Jewry that are at least Orthodox should be one Zach, and why you should be at the top. Okay, this was possible to think in this way because all the Jews coming over from Eastern Europe, they're roughly similar. They all spoke Yiddish, they all had generally the same ideas more or less. There's to be one large yeshiva that can have thousands of students from all over the country, you know, and that school will train Rabbanin, set up the English-speaking rabbis to all those types of shuls all across the country, all across the North American continent, it was in Canada, and therefore that'll be the analog to the conservative reform. It's a certain model. Um he he definitely wanted that. Now you know and I know that the way Orthodoxy evolved in the United States, especially after the Second World War, were radically um atomized. Uh there's no such thing as a movement called Orthodox Judaism. See, there is a movement called Reform, there's a movement called Conservative, there's a movement called Reconstruction. Orthodoxy is a world. Right? It's not denominational. It's not like France where all the Jews were French type. Or Germany, all the Jews were German type. In America, you have every different type, especially after the Second World War. And so, what's the worst of Judaism? It covers a lot of things. You got your Hasidim, you got Miznagdim, you got your literacy, you got this, You got the Yekkes in the Washington Heights, you got the uh, sotmer in the Monroe. You know, you got all kind of different groups, and no one can speak for anyone else. You understand? You have the, the you know, the Agudah and the, and the Ben Yehuda. You have the young Israel and you got there. Each one makes Shabbos for himself. That's the way it goes. We don't even try nowadays to have one blanket organization for all the Orthodox. Isn't that interesting? You know, you and I grew up, we take it for granted. Here we have right, probably two and a half million, a million Orthodox Jews if you put them all together. Something in those numbers. Nobody's telling anybody else what to do. Or nobody's listening to anybody tells them what to do. We make Shabbos for ourselves. You know, this is how it goes. It's like Will Rogers used to say, I'm not the member of an organized political party. I'm a Democrat. So I can say, I'm not the member of any organized religious denomination. I'm more Zah. Which is true. Dr. Rebel, 100 years ago, literally 100 years ago, was thinking different. He said, maybe we can get all the American Jews to be one zach, Not shoving down anybody's throat by, by consensus. And yeshiva kuchanan, will be at the top of that in a glory. What's wrong with that? And not only that, listen closely. La Fuke, the Reform, which has only a few students, is a trade school. You go there to be a rabbi and make money. So how many students they have every year by the Reform? 10, 15, something like that. And same thing with the ref- conservative in those years. It's a trade school. You learn to become a rabbi. How many students did they have in those years by the, by the conservative in each class? 20, 25. You see what I'm saying? Something like that. In the good years. The good years. As opposed to that, we have a firm approach. So I'm looking, at hopefully, that yeshiva should come build a big, not 10, 20 guys, 100, 200, 500, 1,000. Why not? Why not? We don't believe that yeshiva is a trade school. Of course you're going to turn out to Rabbanim in the Clay Kodesh, but we also want Balabatim. We want Balabatim who are Yodesev who, are yodisev, who like, to use modern expression, I want a brain surgeon who gives a of me. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? And it's doable. You see, that was beyond the Hasaga of the non-front. But it's not beyond the Hasaga of the front. It's it, 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 Agree with me or not, that is the why you model. By the way, nothing wrong with it. It's a great model. The guy's a brain surgeon. He also gives it to me. That's a great model. Okay? So he figured like this. We'll outshine eventually. Won't happen overnight. The conservative, the others. And we'll push him out of the water just by being bigger and better. Now, it didn't happen that way exactly. I understand that. But in a very interesting way, some variation of that happened. Not during his time. He started in 1915 took about 10 years for him to start to get his act together, make the high school and the teacher's college, try to get a better building. But at least he had a vision, right? Now, one thing I never liked about Dr. Rebel, who was a wonderful person, and a great person, is he picked up from America all the hyperbole. Whenever I read his speeches, we're going to have the best of this and the best of the whole Torah Mada idea. It's like highfalutin idealism. You can't really have model in the rebel way. In which each one will fructify the other one. And I mean, let's put it this way: there's no, as far as I know, there's no such thing as a kosher biology, you know what I mean? It is what it is. And in history, believe me, we see the efforts what happens when you try to kosherize history. Or anything else. So I'm more comfortable with the idea like this: A lubeil. This is the Lamudi Kosh part. And this is the Limudicol part. But that's how I was raised. Right. That's my education. So I'm a Baltimorean. You know, I can't. That, that's who I am. And, and I realized there's other models. He kept talking about the fact, you know, the syntheses and all this stuff. It sounds good to some degree. I've read many memoirs of guys who went to YU in the 30s and all. They said, there are no sentences. There was Limudicol here, Limudicol there. He said, we're going to have, we're going to turn YU you do a combination of Harvard and Volusian. I mean, it's a nice phrase. You get it? But you can't have Harvard and Volusian. You can have Harvard. You can have Volusian. But the more you have of one, less you're going to have of the other. So he liked to use these big floating terms. But you want to know something? Maybe that's what ticked off the, maybe that's what turned on the millionaires. You know, they like that kind of rhetoric. And he was able in the 20s to at least build a vision and get people interested in the vision. Even non-from. When I say non-from, people are orthodox but weren't observant. And if you have a big, if you dream big, then you can talk big, even though I just made fun of him and said this hyperbole, if you really believe it yourself. It it it's attractive to some. The same those you get you get followers, you get people who say, you know, this is a vision, I want to get behind. The vision to have in the early part of twentieth century was a YU. In other words, what I mean by that when I say it is, what parents wanted in this country, what they wanted was, my kids, I want my kids to stay from, the, at least as much as I am, maybe not more, but as much as I am. I definitely want them to marry Jews. Uh, I'd like to see them continue the tradition, but not at the cost of a secular education because everybody wanted to Americanize. I don't want them to live a life of poverty. I don't want them to be in this country, they're born in this country, and they talk like a uh, San you know, who just got off the boat. Deliberate, I don't want that. I want my kids to successfully Americanize, become economically successful, but at the same time, you know, be observant, religiously observant Jews. That's what the people wanted. If somebody could have put this out there convincingly, a ton of people who became not from would have stayed from. You couldn't make a case in 1920 for a Byron Cutler approach, which is forget about gosh Miss, forget about everything, it's Torah only, and the heck with American civilization. It didn't. It wasn't out there at that time, you know. Uh, Now you could disagree with me You're know. you entitled to that But it wasn't out there at that time But so many people wondered what I just said I want my son to become a doctor You know, in America My son's a doctor Hey, he can also keep Shabbos (laughs) Right? I'm totally fine with that He can also keep kosher Matter of fact, it's very nice He's a doctor and he keeps kosher That would be such a kid as In the eyes of the people at that time You can't can't believe it He was on to that yeah, same. Oh, no. yeah, let me fix this recording here. Hi, I keep having to switch this. Um. So what was I saying? The idea that, you know, you should have limited a, a, a good degree, make a living, plus, within the from context, which is basically the idea of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, they created this. They worked for them. If you're a Catholic, you can go from kindergarten through Notre Dame or Georgetown or Fordham and get a good degree, Right. You know, so that's all he's doing. This would be very popular. Uh, suppose, I'm just trying to paint you his ideal, which didn't happen. Suppose, why you was not located in, um, you know, in Manhattan over there. Let's just pretend for a second they bought a town, you know, like Harvard is in a certain place, Princeton, whatever. They bought a gigantic campus somewhere like a self-contained campus. I mean, you know, like one of these huge university situations. And there will be a town there and thousands of students, ultimately male and female, would go to school there. Now, is this what you do? You went to high school in Baltimore, went to high school in Chicago, went to high school in Houston, in Atlanta, wherever, Detroit, St. Louis, Milwaukee, you name it. And then for college, you go to this place called YUB, Again, it wasn't called YU in his time, but you know what I mean. And it would be a Yishimani University. They of every kind of graduate school you can think of. And just like a state university, you'd have thousands of Jewish students here. Thousands. I mean, thousands and thousands. Several tens of thousands. And they'd be going there all the time. And you'd be pursuing your degree from beginning to all the way to PhD. Or MD. At the same time, you'd be taking your Lamuni Kodesh classes. Of various types. A whole city would spread out around that, as happens with the university towns, college towns. So you'd have all the professors and all the teachers, and everybody lives, lives, living over there. It'd be um, a from situation, it'd be modern orthodox, but in a in a good sense. It's so a it's it's ideal, you know. Um, instead of the Lakewood being the town that you know, it, 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 what's the right word? Grows around the yeshiva. It'd be some kind of YU situation. So this place is located, you know, like, like uh, University of Maryland is located in College Park and Penn and, and State College and other places, you know, in their towns. That's what it would be. And every student in America, or lots of them, would spend four years or maybe even eight years in that environment. And that would give them a tremendous oomph for the And when they go out and settle wherever they settle, they want to keep to our missus. That That was the idea he had. So he noticed he was enamored of the American university system he's just like the jewish part to have its take on it now he was sufficiently able in the early 20s which was um mid-20s which was a period of prosperity in america i don't know if you know this or not um after the first world war um when it was over late 1918 woodrow wilson within a short time got a stroke and so there was nobody at home in the white house and the economy crashed and it was a depression this is not to Great the depression. And then the Republicans came in and depression lasted for a while. This is in the old days where they just starved the depression out, you know, without any government intervention. And by 1923, the economy was roaring. 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 was uh, uh, amazing growth. Okay? By the time we get to 1928, there was no unemployment. It was 4% unemployment. Uh, look it up if you're interested. So everybody was making money. So at that time, they were from guys who were people who were Orthodox, you know, by affiliation. And he was able, to, there was a famous banquet, I think Hanukkah time, if I remember correctly, 1924. And he said, we got to really make, got to raise a million or more. And uh, who was it? Harry Fischel, who was the Orthodox millionaire. He was there Sharmu Shabbos. Got up and he said, I'm pledging 100 grand. And another guy's at 100 grand. Another guy's a 100 grand. Another guy's 50. And 25. It was incredible. Nobody ever gave that kind of money for anything, let alone a yeshiva. Right? Let alone a yeshiva. I repeat, at that time, it was not yeshiva college. It was just Yitzhak O'chanan. You know what I'm saying? They didn't say we're giving the money for yeshiva college. They may have hoped that's what will happen, but that time it was just strictly for yeshiva. And uh, I want this place to take off the way dr rebel wants it and they raised close to a million which the new york times was like in a major heart attack and that's how he built their building you know where it is now which is a big deal he bought all the property over there but he put down you know um uh, what do you call it, you know uh, down payments and so forth and i mean why you would own three of uh, at least if i remember correctly from the book they own three or four times the amount of real estate that they own. Maybe more. That whole area. The trouble is, a couple years later, came the Depression. A lot of people promised money didn't happen. And the expenses were there, whatever. And so they had to sell off a lot of it. And so what I'm trying to say is like this. For five minutes, he was riding high. I remember he had like a, a Cadillac or Rolls Royce chauffeur, you know, in the mid-20s, Dr. rebel to go around to the millionaires to raise some money. He was trying... To, they you will know, get the the problem at that time was they're starting to graduate students from Yeshiva Yisrael Khan. They're trying to take up with shellers around America, and the old rabbis from Europe, who were still alive, were fighting them because they didn't want him horning in. It was a turf war, you know. I remember if you read your cafe book, there's a lot of turf war issues. Um, But, you know, which I understand, you know, a new guy shows up, is killing my pernosa. This is the ugly side of the rabbit. A lot of these guys had hex shirts and all this other kind of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, the younger generation wanted rabbis that could speak in English. Is this the way it is? So it was a tricky, you know, business. they had that kind of politics. Uh, he wanted the yeshiva to be a real yeshiva, and very much in the Lithuanian style, he said the only way it could be if you have to have a guttle here, and he's the one who started the tradition, which was not performed. You can't tell me any famous rabbi taught Yitzhak Han for rabble shout up. There weren't any. Yeah, God's fine among the shears, you know, but nothing special. And he said, We're going to get the Mechster Eloy and later Moshe Soloveitchit. They had Bashim and teacher teach every year. You know, other people like that. And I was really big Tommy Chachon. Which means, let's put it this way if you went to IU in um, the 20s and 30s, the top shear was the top shear, <laughs> you know? I'm not making for the lowest shear. I really not. I'm just saying the Moshe Salvation, I mean, you know, that's a big deal. Or uh, Polichek, you know, the Mesher Eloi, Talmud Moker, Rechai Breska, I mean, come on, you know. Uh, so, you know, he had that yeshiva, shag, shall I say, sensibility, that for sure. But on the other hand, uh, he also wanted to have, as I say, it should be the English speaking rabbi, it should be, you know, have an American education also. Hopefully, to speak to the all about them. Now you know how that goes. The secular education usually you know, takes away from the Kodish, unless he can really pull up, pull off a a tightrope act. On The other hand, if we get a rabbi with no education whatsoever, in American culture, we get a guy who's just going to scream at everybody. He's not he's not going to have much of a rosham. So it's a, you know it's 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 a tricky it's a tricky business. Um. Now he, I'll say it again. He wanted, His idea was to build it up more and more. He found out that you can make your own college. I don't think he even knew that. So I remember I heard once a uh, tape recording. Was it a Dr. Saar or somebody like that? One of his lieutenants who worked for him in the 20s. And the guy happened to know some other American educationist. McGuire, I think. And he said, you know, I think you brought up in the conversation... What does it take to make a college? And so, well, you need a half a million, you need this, that, and the other. It wasn't beyond reach. And um that's what led Dr. Revel to say, I guess, well, let's go for a college. Because that'll just enhance things. Plus, you know, the idea I said before, the Catholic model. Why well, should only be through high school? Go four more years, so your kid will get a BA without ever having to go to a Galicia college. That's great. Now, um, uh, I'll say it again, the theory could work. The theory could work. As we know, in the Second World War, afterwards, Ron Cutler and all the other didn't like the idea. There are different ways of doing it. In the end, nothing really was done. I'll tell you what I mean. In my opinion, for what it's worth, I think Rabbi, Rabbi Rebel would have been smarter, maybe it's from Baltimore, to do like this. If I can use the word Turo, it's not the same thing either. They have yeshiva to And then they should own a college. They should make a college. But it shouldn't be you know a half a day this. It should be like a real regular college that they control. Which is for the purpose the yeshiva guys should go there, people like that. Um that should be organically linked to the yeshiva. And I think it'll work out better that way, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Um because, you know, that's what uh, they tried to do after the Second World War. I think, uh, who was it? Footner uh, or somebody. Or maybe it was Mendelovich. They wanted to make a certain type of college that way. Exactly what I just described. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but I think where Byron killed it or something like that. I'm talking about in the late 40s. The, let me put it this way. What's the real problem with college? Depends how you look at it. It's one thing you can say, I guess. They teach trade stuff. Well, let's say you're going for accounting. It's not a trade for an accounting. You, you see what I'm saying? You can control what courses will be taught there. You don't have to teach a course in Bible criticism. You could control what courses will be taught there. Uh, and for practical purposes, as they say in Baltimore, Tar-Parnoso, you take a course in this, that, and the other. They didn't necessarily have to t- take Spinoza philosophy. Uh, but Dr. Rabble. what was committed to having a real college. Because the Orthodox had to show that they weren't a joke. And, you know, that's already tricky. Uh, this was in the late 20s. I believe they graduated the first class in, like, 1932. But from then on, somebody wants to can go all the way to BA without ever having to leave the Jewish premises, which is a big deal, especially at that time. How many people then and later went off to Derrick simply because he went to college and they met this guy or better yet they met this girl or they met this professor and the rest is history. Goof for the fact that you don't have that just by itself reduces significantly the percentage of people who are going to leave to Derrick. Uh, the critics are why you don't give enough credit for that. You understand? Now, um, he never had a university. That came later after his time. He would like to. you know, It would be his dream. But... He wasn't able to do that because when the depression hit, the money ran out. He had to sell a lot of the land. He was begging. I remember they couldn't, with the old $30,000, they couldn't raise the money. It was that bad. And they just had a hard time. Um, so he was trying all his co- he could during the 30s to try to keep the, the, the college afloat. And, of course, the yeshiva afloat. Obviously, Hitler was rising at this time. That made things even worse. He wanted his best to have the Gedol Yisrael, by which he meant the Lithuanian rabbis, legitimate Yeshiva College. You know, yes, no. Most of them came. They spoke there. They gave Shiram there. That didn't mean that they really held from it. You know, they didn't. They didn't. It's like that. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, I'm not going to the story of Echon and Wassim, but most of the people spoke there. Everybody knew he's very from everybody knew he's very idealistic and, and what he's doing with the shame. Shamayim, there's nobody questioned that, right? You can question, you could agree or disagree with the methods. There's no question he meant well, and it, there was no question he was a tzaddik. Let me be clear about this you know, he gave his money away for tzaddakah, all that kind of stuff. He was a tzaddik, he was brought up well, and he was a balmusser too. When I say that, I mean. He conducted himself, as far as I'm aware, although there's a few incidents here and there, there always is, but overall, uh, you know, very much in an a ethical way, let's put it that way. Um, and he was fighting real hard a big trend, which at that time was almost like an undertow towards conservative. That's just what America was at that time. The why he was constructed around the idea that they're trying to fight the conservative. That's really was the agenda. How successful he was? Eh, not really, because it was, you know, the, the the direction was in that way. Had he had the money behind him, it would have been a different story. The great tragedy of Rabbi Revel is he had the ideas, he couldn't get the millionaires. You get it? If they, if they would put together fifty million bucks, I'm just making this up, and say, okay, now do what you want. He would have made schools all over America. They should be feeders for Y.U. And like I said before, it'll be a huge place. And it'll knock the seminary and the elders out of the park because they have a few students and we have hundreds and we have thousands. And we make you irrelevant. You see, we make you irrelevant. Um, But he didn't have that kind of money. Um, I would say in general, that's possibly the tragedy of Y.U. They never had enough money to carry out the full mission, you know, the way they would like to see it. I heard Norman saying Norman Lamb saying himself. I heard him. Which is true. Because you're not talking about a little yeshiva over here. Although today the yeshivas themselves have huge you know, budgets, as you know. But to run English and Hebrew in a campus and all the rest of it was was much, much harder. And uh, the big tragedy again, I'm skipping around, but I just give you the main highlights. The big tragedy so I would say is first of all, he couldn't get it across that all Orthodox Jews in America should back YU the way he wanted. It. Matter of fact, the firms of the firm preferred Tervadas and other models. Why he wasn't from enough for them. Among other things, he was a Zionist. They at that time were a good anti-Zionist. Uh, he was a Zionist like a particular claim. You know what I mean? Klaw Israel should build a bench Israel. He was a from guy. He wasn't a favor of the non-from stuff. But on the other hand, Mizrahi was the big organization. He was part of it. I'll say it again. He was a, a, a big member to Mizrahi. Mizrahi. Y.U. has always been committed to that. Um, uh, d- 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 they were the flagship institution of that whole shita. Um, whatever the case is, uh, here's the thing. As the '30s unfolded, you saw Europe is is in big danger. He died in 1940. He died in 1940. Um, I guess late in 1940. By that time, Hitler was already invading, took over Poland. He was about to take over Lithuania and the others. It didn't happen yet. They were already writing him letters. I remember Raskov has in a book from uh, Gifter and it tells and others, "Help us, save us." And he tried to do what he could to give people jobs. He saved whoever. You know what the State Department was like in those days. Um, and then he died right then, like December or something like that. 1940, smack in the middle of war. A guy like... He was young. Suppose he would live another 20 years. He was 55. He could have lived easily in 75. I'm just making this up. So instead of dying in 1940, he would have died in 1960. He would have seen World War Two, Afterwards, the DP camps, the rise of the State of Israel, the whole yeshivas. I mean, one can only speculate... And it's a very interesting conversation. How would Dr. Revel have, have responded to the influx of Godolom in America, the rise of Medina Israel, um, the possibilities that that raised, uh, the tragedy of the Holocaust? I mean, it's fascinating you know, because he was a literature Jew. So the people who were wiped out, I repeat, wiped out in Europe, especially in Lithuania, that was his people. They were all killed, as we all know. Uh, how would that affected how he saw the vision of the institution? Uh, how would that affect how he saw American Jewry going? Because to tell you the truth, in the 20 years after the Holocaust, that's when the um, conservative movement went white-hot. But it didn't go white-hot among the Jews who were educated. It went white-hot among the Jews who were not educated. So he's been saying like this, if the millionaires would back me up, I could have by now have created at least a chalic of a generation that were not ignorant, and then they wouldn't have gone for the conservative. You know what I'm saying? What is the history in America? Once the day schools got to act together, once the yeshivas became organized, now it takes a few decades, the conservative movement has sh- shriveled because they used to get the people who were somewhat traditional but defecting from the Orthodox. Once you close it up and give them a real yeshiva education that they don't want to defect, the conservative can't supply their own from their own. Their own falls away most of them engulfed the dirt, if they leave the conservative. That's why they shrunk to a nothing. He had this plan in 1920, but he didn't have the wherewithal to pull it off. So it's a, it's a kind of a tragic life, even though he poured his heart and soul into building up the school. And of course, why is a, a big place. I mean, you know, it's silly. You know, I'm not going to say silly things about this it. big institution, famous place. Uh, did it turn out the way he would have wanted? I don't know. It's a it's a nice question. I think all kidding aside, they have conferences to discuss that themselves in uh, why you in those circles. But um, the main plan, which was you can only save the as much as you can through education. You have to have good schooling systems. You have to have good post schooling systems. Uh, this he saw. Nineteen twenty, nineteen fifteen. You know, there's no such thing as a kid staying from without it from high school. We take this for granted for granted today. He started it. There's no such thing as hoping a kid will stay from unless you have something in mind for post-high school, whether the YU model or something else. I mean, he he's the first one to really say, let's do something about it. We can't take it away. So the others built, I would say, on what he did. They went in different directions, perhaps, but they built on the general idea it all boils down to chinach, chinach, and chinoch. And daddy was 100% right. Uh, I remember reading somewhere with Kevin something, something like when he took this job to do the dissertation on him, which was in the late 60s. Rebel was like a forgotten guy. It's interesting because why he went in all kinds of different directions. And whoever took over took later took over. And he was kind of like forgotten. And he resurrected him in this biography that he wrote. And he's a very interesting person if you understand that he represents one side of the Litvisha approach, not the only side. And I repeat again, as I leave, not the yeshivish side because he wasn't yeshivish in the Lithuanian yeshivish sense. You understand? He was too wide and too broad and too eclectic. I remember he asked the altar or something like that, send me a mashkir. That's the way he thought. I want to get the best professor from Harvard, the best Balmuzer Clays from vardic, the, the best Maggachir, you know, from wherever. And, you know, this approach, you get the best, the best, the best. That doesn't necessarily make for a well-integrated faculty. <laughs> and that doesn't necessarily make for a well-integrated hashkafa that you pass over to the students. And they did complain about that during his time. But on the other hand, he was very uh, um, involved with the boys. And I think he was popular with as best as I can tell. as he cared about them. And they saw there's not some time server, some administrator just holding on to a job so you can get a salary and then the pension and all that kind of stuff, paper pusher. It was the opposite of that. And that alone makes somebody very interesting. Anyway, I've spoken long enough. I want to thank once again the Kasanovskis. And uh, with that, I wish you a good week. I hope somebody will be interested in sponsoring for tomorrow and the next day whenever the Parsha and the uh, and after With that, I wish you a good day.